Say to the people of the Lord that I've gathered you into this place to sanctify you in this place to bring you a fresh word, to wash you with the cleansing of my word, and for you to discover the deep riches of my will. And I assemble you in this city of St. Louis as a bulwark against the force of darkness that you, through your prayers and through your praise, will usher in my presence into this building. And that that ushering in of my presence will flow out into the streets and the community of St. Louis. And I declare today in this place that I am with you. My anointing rests upon you in this holy place as it is sanctified and as you yield yourself to my presence. I will break yokes and set captives free and bring the church of God in Christ to a new level of understanding of my holiness and my will. In the name of Jesus, we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. The Lord who is our strength and our redeemer and all of God's people said, amen. Please be seated. 
House has been addressed, but it would be an appropriate thing, I think, to express my gratitude to the presiding bishop and to the general board for what approaches nearly eight years of service and working with this board. If you don't mind, I want to say something about our general board. I searched over my records and found that I have, over the course of my career, served on and or have served for no less than 41 boards and major commissions, international, national, local. I've never had the experience of watching the dynamic of a board quite like the general board. There is a certain symbiosis that exists among them that when the business of the church is at hand, they approach it with all sobriety. Each matter is taken very seriously and hours upon hours of deliberation on how the church can forge the best pathway forward to the glory and to the honor of God. And I'd like to ask this body of believers to just give the Lord a hand clap for the general board under the leadership of their chairman, the chief apostle and presiding bishop of the Church of God in Christ. Can you do a little better than that? I want to talk to you today from a passage of scripture. I'm at a slight disadvantage, Mother Rivers, I can't go into the details of a recent visit to the doctor's office, but I know that the Lord, who is my helper and is my strength, he will help me today. I'd like to ask you to lend me your your ear with the promise that the Holy Ghost will give it back to you with dividends and interest. Let me have your ear. There's a text that has been for many years a tough text for me. It's found in the book of Ezekiel. I want to ask if you would get your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel, the eighth chapter, and the first verse. The second thing that I want to ask you to do is to be patient with me while I read from this Old Testament prophet's writings. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, and the fifth day of the month, 
As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward fire, and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain of chapter 3. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there north of the altar gate was the image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far from my temple. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. Now remember, I asked you to be patient with me. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Mm. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel, portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Lord, have mercy. What is the son of the secretary of state to one of the most righteous kings, King Josiah, doing in this place. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land.
I remember I said, be patient with me. And he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tamas. What in the world? In the house of the Lord, are there people weeping for Tamas? Out of all this springtime season and month, celebrating, memorializing, and weeping for a dead capital, excuse me, small G-O-D, because the goddess has lost her small letter G-O-D, Adonis, because a boar devoured him. What in the world, in the house of God, is going on? Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than these. Then watching people hiding in the walls of the temple, then observing women mourning an idol greater than an idol that provokes, intended to provoke God to jealousy? Really? And he says, so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. They're supposed to be facing the temple. What in the world is going on? And their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. 17 verse. And he said to me, have you seen this? O son of man, is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence when they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, listen to this carefully, they put the branch to their nose, they thumb their nose at me. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Somebody say, God have mercy.
I'm sorry that I cannot get to the context of Ezekiel's vision. I can't do that because that incorporates the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th chapters and the 11th chapter. But what I can say is that there is something happening in the 8th chapter that becomes foundational to what I want to discuss with you today. I'm fully aware that um, this is our first service. And I'm always concerned as a former pastor that every entryway into the house of God can easily be done as a mindless exercise. It can be something that has happened for us so often until great expectations are nullified. It is because we can one more time say this is our 10th, our 20th, our 30th, or however many years we attribute and can contribute our coming to this place out of form and out of fashion. This is my 30th convocation. This is my 30th. You have no idea how many times I was still sitting way back there. The passage of scripture that I read for you today sets as a canvas against the history of the children of Israel. And there are a couple of things happening in the passage that are incredibly disturbing to me. They're disturbing to me because there are things that are happening in the temple that don't reflect what Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers prescribes for the temple code of behavior. And the other thing that is particularly puzzling about the text is that the prophet is told to not only go to the wall and see where there is a hole but he's asked to do something that again in Leviticus and Deuteronomy he's asked not to do. He further desecrates the house and then I'm reminded that this is an epiphany. And there are so very few prophets who are more eccentric, who are more peculiar than the prophet Ezekiel. He does some incredibly peculiar things in that earlier chapter, I think it's the fourth chapter, where the Lord tells Ezekiel, for the sake of Israel, lay on your side for 390 days. Bake a certain bread that isn't according to what God calls as the 
appetite of Jewish people. And then after he finishes 390 days on one side, the Lord then tells him, now turn on your other side and lay there for 40 days. I'm going somewhere, but it takes me just a moment to get there. I want to make sure that the foundation of the sermon has the kind of energy that can sustain the application. Bishop White, church work is a peculiar work in and of itself, not because of anything related to what God established as, Mr. Chairman, the ultimate constitution of the church is the Word of God. There is no argument among sanctified folk that we are a Bible-believing, Bible-thumping, tongue-speaking, hand-clapping, foot-stomping, sanctified people. We're, 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 not, we're not like others, and we ought to stop trying to be like others. I carry no aspersions against other faith movements, but the deoxynucleic ribonucleic acid of the Church of God in Christ, our DNA, is programmed for us to be a certain people. I'm at a disadvantage standing here because I'm a broken man. I'm a broken man. I'm a broken man where my sufficiencies in life are entirely dependent upon the grace of God. There is nothing about me to brag about. All that I know is that this church taught me the centrality of Jesus Christ in the believer's life. The text, if you don't mind, I'd like to elaborate. Here we have a story of the eighth chapter where the prophet Ezekiel is sitting in his house and sitting before him are the elders of Judah and the hand of the sovereign God comes into his house in a refugee camp sitting outside of Babylon And when the hand of God comes upon Ezekiel, he sees a vision that favors the image of a man, except that from his waist down, from his waist down, he's like fire. 
And Ezekiel sees in the same image from his waist up like hot metal, amber. Says that protruding from this image was a hand that reaches down and by the lock of Ezekiel's hair picks him up at the refugee camp of bondage where the glory of the Lord, where the circumstance is bondage. The presence of God is near. And that presence, that glory, demonstrates that despite what the circumstance is, there is no bondage with a lock strong enough to keep out the glory of God. The scripture says that he suspends him in animation and transports him from Iraq to Jerusalem. And while he is holding this prophet in the air, the prophet looks down and observes to the north at the gate sits an idol designed to provoke God to jealousy. I'm not going to ask you to say anything to anybody else, but I'm going to ask you to say to yourself, God doesn't need, go ahead and say it, God doesn't need anything, anybody to provoke him to jealousy. The difference between human jealousy and the jealousy of God is that God's jealousy is about ownership of that which is his. I'm going someplace. Ownership that's his when he comes to make up his jewels, they shall be they shall be mine, says the Lord. God's jealousy is about protecting anything that doesn't mean his people any harm from having any influence over his. He wants it sanctified, not because God is a selfish God, but because God is a smart God. He knows the limitations of his creation. And so he understands that without God, we can do nothing. That Mother Kelly, but with him, all things are possible. Scripture says that when he lowers him down into the inner court, I want you to see this. Off to the north, is the king's palace with a pathway that runs to the north gate. And at the north gate, the people bring their sacrifice. The sacrifice is brought in to the priests where the priests who in their own preparation ultimately offer that sacrifice on the altar that applies the atonement over the sins of Israel. But at the gate, 
There's an idol that blocks the blessing. There's an idol that blocks the blessing. One of the things about a convention is that it ought to start with an honest diagnostics of who we are. One of the things about what we are called to do is to not rush into it without ample preparation to ensure that God is ready for us to enter into a holy place and ultimately into the holy of holies. And when there are obstacles that get in the way, it affects the ability to reach the ultimate destination. It's a waste of time to come all the way from around the world to St. Louis and not reach the Holy of Holies. It's an awkward thing and it's a disappointing thing to leave the convocation having been distracted by things between the portal and the Holy of Holies. Holy Ghost, speak to us now. And so the scripture says that he sees in this wall after the idol that provokes to jealousy he sees the second, the second distraction. And the temptation for all of us is to stand off like the Pharisee and say, I'm not like that. Instead of standing off saying, Lord, have mercy upon me. It's an easy thing to read the scripture and forget that Paul talking to the Corinthian church in the 10th chapter, I believe, says, 2 Corinthians, that God gave us Old Testament as our own film documentaries. He's given to us picturesque views of how the children of Israel can easily mess up a good thing. And that those, those, those Pictures are given to us in Old Testament so that we can have a clear vision of what not to do. It's, it's not for us to rest on our laurels and feel proud of the fact that the things of Israel are not the things of a contemporary church. Because in this time that we live in, it's important for us to check ourselves. To not think that God is a peculiar spirit that becomes that friendly with us. That God loses his objectivity about who we really is. That there are things that happen in our lives every single day that require for us to say, whoa, it is me. Can I go on? Yes, there's an idol that provokes to jealousy. Yes, 
Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, who happens to be the secretary of state or was under King Josiah, is in this secret chamber hiding his sins. You can't get right denying that there's something wrong. You can only get right by confessing, I'm not what I used to be, but I'm also not yet what God wants me to be. I'm going somewhere, but I want to make sure that for at least the next couple of minutes before I get there, I try to share something with you. Distractions in the house of God. The children of Israel are in a bad state. And if we're trying to step back away from all 40-something chapters of Ezekiel and try to understand Ezekiel and ask, what is the purpose of including this book in the 66? Why do we need to do that? We need to include it in the 66 because of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and even 2 Samuel. We need to include it there because there needs to be an explanation of how God could make promises to the children of Israel of establishing a tabernacle where his name will be there and his presence will forever be perpetuated there. How could Ezekiel be demonstrating just the opposite? There is a prophecy that Bishop Mason gave to the Church of God in Christ, and that is that there would never, ever be a building big enough to hold us. I can't imagine how many conversations that I've heard people trying to explain that prophetic word as if 6.5 million members can fit in any building anywhere. And I know that I'm the only person left, other than perhaps Bishop Jesse Ellis, who believes that the Church of God in Christ actually has 6.5 million members. But that has to do with the fact that I believe the Church of God in Christ actually has more. But, 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 but let me explain. It's a man-made invention to determine that the membership in the sphere of pastoral care is limited to people on a book. I've watched for 25 years, never an occasion of watching the Bishop Charles Blake conduct an altar call. I only remember one occasion that no one came. But at West Angeles, every Sunday morning, without fail, Presiding Bishop steps to the center, extends himself in an invitation and says, if there's anybody here who wants God to forgive them for the wrong they've been and for the wrong that they've done, come this way. And if you're watching from television, you, you see this incredible thing of people coming from all over that huge church coming to stand at that altar weeping because of the wrong they've done. John Wesley once said that the world is my parish. 
He was trying to dispel the notion that the preacher should see his responsibility specific to those who pay tithes. That the Church of God in Christ is an organization functioning in 63 nations, 12,000 churches. But what does that look like against the backdrop of 7.2 billion people? What does that look like in terms of a nation of China with 1.4 billion people, or India with nearly 1.3 billion, or the United States with 323 million people, or other places around the world. The world is our parish. And when we get down to it and start thinking about the biblical history, one of the things that becomes abundantly clear is that God from Genesis to Leviticus is attempting to form and to shape a people who will be identified as his. And because of the endemic nature of each one of them, there is failure after failure that takes place over the history of the Old Testament. Every time it appears that the children of Israel have learned from their past, some period of prosperity causes them to drift away from the holiness of God. Bible tells us, brothers and sisters, that God has always been trying and is achieving what he said in Genesis and in Deuteronomy. In Genesis, he said that he would place his foot on the neck of Satan. And we have to understand that the story of Genesis and the endemic mistake, failure, and sinfulness that has forever given us the condition of sin, that that condition required some kind of propitiation, some kind of sacrifice, some kind of means so that in the presence of God, that which God still wants to have relationship with is in a position to commune with him. And in Genesis, we open with that passage of God promising that that will happen. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy and Numbers, we understand that God is saying that ultimately I want to just craft out a remnant of people who will follow me. It is as if God is saying in his word that the best way that he can accomplish his kingdom on earth is if he starts with a small minority. Isn't it strange that across this globe, for as long as we can look back at the history of the, Israels, the Israelites in the past 100 years, when we look back to it 100 years ago, spread out as a diaspora across this nation, that all across the globe, before the reestablishment of Israel, there have only been recorded 14 million Jews on the earth. And even today, there are still just 14 million Jews, 7 million of which live in the promised land. God has always used a small segment to establish his kingdom. When we get to Exodus and find Moses trying to deal with God's people, 
Most people do not really embrace the idea that that experience in the wilderness was not just about rebellion. It was about identification. When Moses is on, the, 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 on Mount Sinai for three months, he's there to get the word of God. But for another nine months around that Sinai, Moses is getting the word of God of how the children of Israel are to go from a polytheistic society where almost anything could be placed on the altar as a, as a thing that can be worshipped to helping them to understand that here, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord, is one God. He's one Lord. He's one Jehovah, one Yahweh, one Adonai. When we look at the passage of Scripture found in the Old Testament, it appears that what God is establishing not only is a people, but he's establishing a kingdom. A kingdom that though the children of Israel seem to have failed, the Lord says that he will ultimately end up with a peculiar, a chosen, and a, a peculiar and, and royal priesthood. That the Lord has called into this 21st century, stepping down through 40 and two generations, his own son, who would be able to become the ultimate sacrifice for humankind. The Lord always knows how to make it work. So when we think about what God is trying to do in the 21st century and how he's trying to accomplish it, the first thing we must do is look back and see the failures of the children of Israel. We must recognize that the God that we serve is the kind of God who wants to sanctify a people unto himself. He wants to take upon himself an individual who will sell out completely to him. And the Lord in establishing a royal priesthood no longer leads brick and mortar and cedar. For the kingdom that God is a trying to establish and has established started in Bethlehem. When Jesus was born into this world, walked around the sandy shores of Galilee, ultimately Jesus himself stands there in the temple proclaiming the mysteries of God at 12 years of age. But what Jesus was trying to establish from the very beginning is that God doesn't need to have a whole lot of folk to get something done. In the words of Margaret Mead, don't underestimate the power of a small group of people to change the circumstances of a society. And so when we look at the book of Ezekiel, what we discover is that there are distractions standing in the way of God's progress. That when you see distractions in the house of God, the lesson of the day is to tell us not to be distracted, not to be bamboozled, not to be bewitched. For Paul told the church in Galatia, who, oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you would not be able to see and hear the glory of God. My brothers and my sisters, looking back at Ezekiel's testimony, it seems like a very dark day, for it is a declaration that declares that the glory of God has departed. But thanks be to God that he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. That in spite of all you're going through, the Lord always wants to be somewhere close, hoping for that moment that you'll say, Father, 
I stretch my hands to thee. So here in Ezekiel's lesson tells us about distractions, distractions that can turn the face of God. But thanks be to God that he's always somewhere waiting to hear his name. And so when we get down to the New Testament, we discover that Ezekiel's testimony, which is included in the latter chapters of Ezekiel, that Ezekiel saw a vision where coming out from the altar of the Lord, there was an image of the presence of God manifested as the water of life flowing down from the altar, flowing down through the aisle, flowing down and out of the door, flowing down and out into the land. For wherever the Spirit is, you can expect the Lord to be right there, ready to do the, the impossible, ready to do the impossible. For in this scripture that we read, if we go on to read in the 37th chapter, where Ezekiel says he rose and went down to the valley of dry bones, and he heard the word of the Lord, Ezekiel, son of God, can these dry bones live? Depending upon your circumstances, somebody has counted you out. Depending upon your circumstances, somebody has already canceled your reservation to heaven. But I want to tell you that though a righteous man be cast down seven times, you shall not utterly fall. Because wherever grace is, grace comes as the power of the living God capable of transforming us, of changing us, of lifting us, of fixing us. Saints of the Most High God, the scripture never leaves us in a deserted situation. Every time a sermon is preached, it cannot conclude with doom because Jesus stepped down through 40 and two generations, stood on the foundments of glory and said, all power, in heaven and earth is in my hands. So no matter what folk might say, no matter what folk might do, keep your mind focused on the Lord who is able to do anything but fail. Say yes, my brothers and my sisters. In this passage that declares so much doom, turns out by the end of Ezekiel, he's declaring that there is going to be a way for God to bring us out. And so we've come to St. Louis, where a counter peg is under our legs, where scenes are all, all over this place, where the circumstances seem to put us on edge. But I want you to know that God is in charge of this Hagiot Ecclesia. He gathered us here as a holy people, and he has already declared that he is in charge because everywhere the spirit of the Lord is he's in charge say yes if you don't believe it just remember that Jesus who died on a cross to become the sacrifice to become the redeeming God he did that for you and for me so no matter what you're going through no matter what your stress is the Lord has declared 
that he's able to bring you out. Say yes. My brothers and my sisters, I just believe that God has called us here to declare to us the searchable and unsearchable riches of his glory. So I say to you, don't you be weary in well-doing, for we shall reap if we faint not. Say yeah, say yeah. Yes, Lord, let me conclude by telling you that God has always wanted the kingdom, that God has always wanted the people, but not like Old Testament. He picks us up by the blood of the Lamb, and he washes us, and he cleanses us. But that's not enough for when the day of Pentecost had fully come. They were in one place, and suddenly a sound from heaven, like a rushing mighty wind, filled the house 